podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Well, this morning, I'll be speaking the second installment in our Psalms series. Second installment in the Psalms series. Say that 24 times. It's a lot of S's, y'all. So I want to give you a preface here. I'm going to begin with a little bit of teaching and then get into preaching. And I'm going to try and preach because I feel really, really strongly about the Psalm for today. But part of our objectives this, for this series, which will be for the rest of this month and then most of next month, is to help enable and empower you to read the Psalms well and to integrate the Psalms into a, to being a regular part of both the corporate worship of this church, but then also of your lives personally and individually and as couples and as families. Uh, the Psalms can be very daunting. It's, it's easy to look at the Psalms and read the Psalms and recognize the humanity in them, that they are full of emotion, they're full of feelings, they're from a variety of perspectives and not really know what to do with them. I mean, Pastor Jade confessed vulnerably last week that there was a whole grouping of Psalms, approximately 50% of them, that for a long time, he didn't really even know what to do with. And, and I would honestly say the same for myself, that Psalm 103, man, I can get behind that. But Psalm 51, only in moments of weakness. And then the Psalm 82 that we're going to read this morning, I most likely would have just completely skipped over. And I think that the Lord has something for us in those other 75 Psalms that we've been skipping over. And maybe it's just the two of us. Maybe we just need to preach to each other. Uh, But I'd like to begin by just rehearsing a few of the points that Pastor Jade made last week with maybe a little bit of my commentary. And I'm going to try and keep the teaching part as short as I can so that I can preach Psalm 82. But I want to hit on, so why are the Psalms good for us? aside from being a book of the Bible, okay? So, so we'll just take that one out. Because they're in the Bible, that's the first answer, but we're not gonna talk about that, all right? So I would say, for one, because they were the hymn book and the prayer book of Jesus, that though the Psalms were in the Old Testament, that for those who lived in the New Testament, the Old Testament was their scriptures. So when Jesus or Paul or James or John refer to the scriptures, they're referring to the Old Testament. And more than any other book, the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament. Matter of fact, Bonnie's brother, my brother-in-law, is doing his PhD at uh, St. Andrews. Shout out to you, Seth, if you ever listen to this. But he's doing his PhD dissertation on the use of the Psalms in the book of Hebrews. There's so many references to the book of Psalms just in the book of Hebrews. He's writing an entire PhD dissertation on it. The Psalms are are replete throughout the New Testament, and obviously they're the biggest book of the Old Testament. So number two, why are the Psalms uniquely good for us? They reveal personal and corporate accounts of the life of faith. 
that part of what we see in the Psalms is a corporate liturgy, a, a something that like we do on Sunday mornings to open our service, they would read these things in the corporate worship setting in the temple and the tabernacle aloud. But then they are also very private, personal remarks and statements of faith and prayers and complaints and all of the following. So when we read the Psalms, we get both. We get corporate accounts and we get personal accounts. Number three, why are the Psalms good for us? They force us to wrestle with the difficulties of life for ourselves and for others. And this is one of the keys that I'm gonna hit on here in just a second. But I think part of the way we've been trained as evangelicals to read the Bible is when we're reading devotionally to always ask at the end of it, usually we start by saying, what does it say? What does it mean? And then how does it apply? And while that is helpful, I think it is far too narrow, especially for the Psalms. It is far too narrow because if you read the Psalm where David says that he wishes the babies of his enemies would be smashed against the rocks, I would hope that when you read that, it doesn't apply to you. (laughs) But that doesn't mean it has nothing to say to us. So I think Part of the beauty of the Psalms is that they force us to wrestle with the difficulties of life in a different way than just responding to, how does this apply to my life? And I'll hit on this a little bit more in a second. Uh, And then number four, lastly, why why are the Psalms uniquely good for us? Number four, they teach us how to direct our emotions, our complaints, our doubts, our questions, and our gratitude toward God in ways that are faithful. So, They teach us how to direct, just for your notes, if you're taking notes, the full range of emotions to God in a faithful way. That's one of the things that I think is so beautiful about the Psalms is that we can read it and go, man, look at all the crazy things that they say in the Psalms. But all of them are directed Godward. And I think that's a there's a really important message for us in that, that part of our healing when we are going through really, really difficult times is not holding back and really saying the things that are on your heart to say, but not saying them to people who are weak and fallible and broken and who might be negatively impacted by certain things that might be said. There is a wisdom to be had in that context, but God is completely unoffendable. God, we there is no self-preservation in God. There is... There is nothing that we can do or say that should be out of bounds for us with God, as long as it is directed in faithfulness to God. That is the distinction. That is the important part that we have to understand. That God wants us to not, as Chris Green said it, and I have another Chris Green reference if he ever listens to this here later, but one of the mistakes that we often make is that we're truthful with one another in ways that we should be truthful with God. In other words, we say things holding literally nothing back to people, hoping that they will be safe. And sometimes there is, of course, a place for that. But really, God wants us to let out the entirety of our emotions, to let out the entirety of our griefs and our complaints and our doubts and all of these things. He wants us to let those things out toward him that we might then find healing as God works on us and in those things. 
One thing I thought was beautiful as I read uh, the Psalms was that, or as I was reading for this message on the Psalms, is N.T. Wright has a really, really tiny book on the Psalms, but he says, we have to be careful from thinking that any way that we read the Psalms is going to automatically lead us into wholeness in the Christian life because they are so vulnerable and because they say so many things that throughout the rest of scriptures, we might go, ooh, I'm kind of surprised they say that. We can be tempted to think that if we just say those things that we're going to find good results. And he warns us and he says, he highlights these certain abuses that the kingly Psalms have been used throughout history to justify tyranny and wickedness by earthly rulers. That the meditative Psalms have been used to justify pious retreat from God's world. That the penitential or repentance Psalms, which we're gonna talk about here in just a few weeks actually, have been used to justify navel gazing. And that the creation Psalms have been used to express a romantic pantheism, which basically means that God is everything. And the problem there is that there becomes no distinction between the creator and the creation. So we have to look at the full spectrum of the Psalms that we don't then get pinned in and start to make some of these mistakes. And if we read and worship with the full spectrum of the Psalms, I think there are some natural boundaries and some natural guardrails there for us. So when we talk about the Psalms and think about the Psalms, I think there are two main ways that we have to set up right from the beginning. One is what do we do with this psalm. So there are different kinds of psalms, psalms that were meant to be sung in the corporate gathering. And then there are others like Psalm 51 that is a a deeply personal cry of David's heart. And then there is, what do we do with the content of these psalms, of this psalm? That all psalms, excuse me, let me start that again. The content of each and every psalm is not to be taken as doctrine. But there is something useful as scripture for us in every psalm. Does that make sense? That first we have to treat and say, what what is this psalm? What do we do with this particular psalm? And then what do we do with what it says? About this psalm in particular, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look together this morning at Psalm 82. So that's, that's the majority of the context setting this up, but I just have a couple of quick little things here. Uh, going to question number one. So what do we do with this psalm? So Psalm 82, in most of your Bibles, there's gonna be a little subheading that says a psalm of Asaph. So who is Asaph or what is Asaph for that matter? So Asaph is believed to be one of the lead temple musicians, a priest, someone who was responsible for the liturgy of the people in the temple at that time. And this particular psalm is a temple liturgy that was rehearsed corporately, much like I've said multiple times already that we do with our call to worship as we begin. It was something that the full body was going to rehearse aloud uh, before one another and before God. And specifically, this is a drama. So you'll hear the language here that, that what we're getting into, it's 
kind of like a parable, but it's a drama where we're getting inside of, it says language of like divine counsel and God calling other entities lower G gods. So this is like a short, a really short eight verse play that they would rehearse aloud and even visually to one another in their worship gatherings. It comes in book number three of the Psalms. So this is just for all the, the history nerds and all the people who really, really care about the technicalities of scripture. But Psalms are divided up into five books. You may see that in your probably most of your Bibles. You've probably seen book one, book two, book three, and so on. And probably just said, huh, and glossed over it, which is honestly what I still do. But if you want to know what they are for, the five groupings of the Psalms, so the five books, have general themes, very, very broad general themes. And book three, which is Psalms 73 to 89, are mostly dealing with why questions. So all of the problems Psalms, if the, the scholars have deemed about four or five Psalms problem Psalms, meaning that there are things in them that are really difficult to discern and to understand, they're all in this section. And this section specifically deals a lot with agency. So what do we do? What does God do? And what just happens? And what are we not doing? And what is God not doing? that is making things happen around us. So there's a lot of questions in these Psalms. And as you will see this morning, it gets to the root of human emotions in book three. <clears throat> and I think something important to note here, right before I, I jump into the actual Psalm 82, is that this gives us permission to ask the why questions. That we, we may not get answers, and throughout scripture, I mean, the whole book of Job is essentially a going back and forth of why. It's exploring the depths of why the difficult things in life happen. And there essentially is no resolution beyond God is God and we are not. And he's okay with us asking those questions. And one day, probably most of it, will make sense to us. <laughs> but we're not even guaranteed that all of it is going to make perfect sense to us. But what we can know is that part of our healing, I think, is found in actually bringing those questions to God. So uh, I wanna jump in here and let's read Psalm 82 together. If you have your Bibles, if not, it will also be on the screen in the NIV. Like I said, this is a liturgy, it's a drama. So the narrator begins and then the voice transitions to the voice of God and then the narrator concludes. He says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. And here is what he says. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk around in darkness. He's talking about the, the little G gods here. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. 
So rise up, O God, the narrator takes back the microphone. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. If you read this in your private devotions, you'd probably be going, oh, fantastic. Psalm 83 now. (laughs) Let's move on. That's okay to admit. Let's just admit it. Yeah. But there is actually one Bible scholar, and I think this is a stretch, but he says he thinks this is the most important passage in all of Scripture. And I think it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. One, that he is joking, but also that there is so much more in this visualization of God in heaven among this council expressing what he really desires for the mortals on earth. And so I do think that there is something far more important than this psalm than we've probably ever given attention to. So we'll get into this. But so before we get into the meat of exegeting and pulling out themes and all of this, what is happening here? So for one, the narrator says God takes his seat as the supreme to judge the other lower G gods, right? And then God calls out these other lower G gods for the injustices that have taken place on their watch. Then he acknowledges that they don't have real knowledge and they don't understand. But because of their actions, the foundations of the earth are shaking. That should give us some alarm. So then the Lord declares their mortality condemning them to the same reality as those that they have failed. Catch that. He says, now you will die as mortals for governing mortals in unjust ways. God condemns those rulers to the same fate as those that they have governed unjustly. And then the psalmist calls for God to rise up and judge justly. So it starts with God sitting down, and then it ends with God rising up. All right, so that's what's happening. And one of the things that I think is just beautiful is we have made a practice of praying the Lord's Prayer as we did just about 15 minutes ago, maybe 20 minutes ago, and praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think the way that this liturgy, this psalm works for us is it gives us a picture into what is happening in earth and then, or in in heaven. And then at the very end of the psalm, then the narrator says, and God come and do that now as yourself in the earth. So it is a way of praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. So how should we understand the gods? Before we can really go anywhere, we have to address There's three uses of little g gods here in this passage. Well, for one, knowing that it is a drama helps, right? So this is is a drama. We don't actually believe that there are other gods. But in this time, we're not sure that the Israelites didn't believe that and that they might have thought that Yahweh was just the most supreme among the other gods. But I think what is subversive here is that the writer is making the point that whether you believe to the other Israelites, whether you believe in other gods or not, Yahweh, the living God, is the supreme God. And in the end, he will judge not only the earth, but he will judge all of the other rulers and princes and kingdoms of this world. I think that's the point that he's trying to make. But beyond that, I think now 
in light of what we know about the New Testament, particularly Ephesians 2 that says, now God has raised us up and seated us in heavenly places with Christ. I think there is a faithful way to read this where we are being invited to listen in on this and we are being invited into the decision-making process as we watch God addressing the little g gods in heaven, I think that what the author is wanting us to see is that as we rehearse this in worship, as we pray this, as we sing this, that our prayers are influencing the way that the rulers actually do rule in this world. That God responds to our prayers, that God responds to our worship. And in ways that is probably far slower than we wish, God is ruling and reigning in this earth. And as we will then see in just a minute, God is ultimately going to rule and reign over everything. And there will be no sickness, there will be no sin, there will be nothing unjust in all the earth. So how can we discern and enact what God's judgment is? Okay, so I want us to look back at verse, let's start with verse two. We'll put it up on the screen. We're gonna walk through just a few verses here. This is a little bit didactic, but I promise you we're gonna get to We're gonna get to some things that we can really grab hold of. So God begins speaking in verse two, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I think we are forced to ask and wrestle with the question of how and why rulers might be doing these things. How is it and why is it that human beings that have been given and endued with authority would use that in such a way as to bring injustice to people who are weak? We might say people who are vulnerable orphans, widows, those who are weak, those who are powerless, those who are poor, those who ultimately are oppressed. And I think I came down to basically three reasons why. And I think we can all identify with these. Number one, it's fear. Why do we avoid justice in our own lives? Fear, I think. Fear of not knowing what will happen if we invite certain people into our homes, if we give certain people money, if we elevate certain people in society, fear. I think it is a real emotion and it needs to be named. Number two, selfish gain. (laughs) On the whole, I think that this is probably the primary reason that rulers and authorities in the earth have perpetuated systems of injustice because they benefit those who are ultimately ruling and in leadership. And I think that has to be named. And then number three, self-preservation. I think that is a very real fear and a very real emotion for why injustices continue to be perpetuated in the earth. Fear, selfish, primarily economic gain, and self-preservation. And I think what we see throughout scripture, I don't want to speak too definitively, but it seems to be, to be very clear to me that from the beginning to the end, God makes a point to call this out, 
to call out economic and systemic injustices in the earth. From the earliest chapters of the Pentateuch, through the prophets, through the Psalms, and of course, in the life of Christ, Christ is always pulling in the outcast, pulling in the poor, pulling in those who were were cast off by the religious society, who were cast off by the Roman government. Most of Christ's miracles, yes, though many of them were casting out demons and healing physical bodies, most of them were done to people who were oppressed. And Christ is calling them back into relationship in society. So there is no shortage of scripture on justice and how Christians are to deal with injustice. But something that's been really important on my heart throughout this week is the main thing I've been wrestling with all week is how to speak about this in ways that are political, but not partisan. Because I think for so many of us, we hear things like speaking up for the oppressed, and before we think of anything Christian, we think of a political party. And we think of a candidate, or we think of a side. And I think what God is calling his church to is to first think about the way that he thinks and the way that he feels about very real people. And you and I have got to confront the ways that we have allowed these things that are very clear in scripture to be politicized. I think some questions that we can ask, number one is, have we allowed injustices to be politicized? When we hear orphans and we think about orphans and we think about young children at the border, do we immediately think about politics or do we think about God's heart for those kids? That's a question we have to ask. And I'm not, I'm not saying we should change the way that we think politically about this as much as I am saying we have to learn how to think Christianly before we can think American. That has to be the higher calling for us. Another question might be, do we avoid thinking about real people that these things affect because we're so caught up in ideologies? Do we allow, have we allowed ourselves to think only in terms of Republican and Democrat and with names of political figures in ways that we cannot even now think about real people that are around us? That when we hear about giving to the poor, all we think about is the Democratic Party and the Democratic agenda. Or when we think about bringing justice, all we think about is the Republican agenda. If the answer to that question is in any way yes for you, as it has been for me, we have some repenting to do. And we need to ask that the Spirit would change our minds because real people are on the other side of our actions or lack thereof more times than not. And I do think that most of us in the room would look around and say, my level of influence doesn't go beyond a single vote. And in some ways, that is true. But in other ways, you can influence very real individual people that you come into contact with. And and I think sometimes we're so caught up with trying to change everything that we don't change anything. That we go back and forth like philosophers with our ideologies and all the while, like the priest in the story of the Good Samaritan, we walk right by as we're philosophizing people who we actually can affect 
and we don't. And in case you think I'm preaching off of a soapbox, let me just remind you of the words of this psalm. That God says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend, now, now he's not asking a question, now he's making a statement. Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Defend them from the hand of the wicked. Notice that God doesn't say anything about what the oppressed, the weak, the needy have done to get themselves in that position. That all God states is that those who have the authority and the power to act should. So I think there's a couple of really clear implications for us. Before I, now, now I'm completely off script, but I've been meditating on this a lot, so I feel okay about it. I think one, this is why it's so important that we pray for the people in, in power and authority. I think it's important because whether they know the Lord or not is really not for us to discern or to determine, but it is important that we pray prayers like, Lord, bring them back to you and convict them to make just rules. And even if they don't know you, would you work in the things that they're doing? I think those kinds of prayers are the kind of prayers that we're called to make. And I also think that as churches, we're called to do very real things to help the people in our neighborhoods and in our local locales and the places that we inhabit. I don't know if you guys have actually taken the time to read the adjusted, addended, amended, excuse me, uh, mission statement over there on the window. But the very last line of send is that God would help us in the places that we inhabit. And, and I think that's important for us uh, to put our finger on because it's all too simple to be too concerned with what's happening in Washington, D.C. to the point where we do nothing in Colorado Springs. And God is calling us out of that, guys. All right, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. Think that's a Rascal Flat song? I'm not totally sure. So what does this psalm teach us? Number one, I think God cares about justice and he calls us to the center of that work. The phrase that came to me during this, this week as I was meditating on this is holy responsibility. Holy responsibility. I think this psalm calls us into a holy responsibility. Keeping in mind that the last verse of this psalm the narrator then turns his focus back to God and says, you've got to judge the earth. Essentially, he resigns and says, God, you have to do this because no one else can. And I think that's important for us to remember that ultimately we cannot fix anything apart from God. God is the one that is ultimately responsible, but he draws us into holy responsibility to do what we can with the very real influence and the spiritual influence that we have been given. Another thing that's interesting to note here is that this psalm establishes and limits the authority of the human rulers of the gods. And that really puts things in perspective for us, that God gives us very real responsibility, but that real responsibility has limits to it. And I think that that helps us to act humbly 
but to also act responsibly. Philosopher Michael Foucault, he's a, a French philosopher who passed away about 30 years ago, says that people often know what they do and even frequently know why they do it. But what they don't know is what they do actually does. Okay, so let me unpack this. We know what we do, the very real actions of right now, I'm picking up a cup. And we oftentimes know why we do these things. I picked up the cup because it's part of a sermon illustration. But what we really don't know in this world is the implications of the things that we do and how they work on other people. Chris Green talked about this. This is my second reference to him. I just in case he listens later. But on the night when he came and talked about ministry, and he said that there are ways in which we can do very real, God-ordained things that are good. And somehow, because this world is so broken, they end up having negative implications on other people. And he used the example of a marriage ministry, that a church full of wonderful marriages with wonderful people who can teach young people how to have great thriving marriages is of course a good thing that God wants. But there are ways in which that could be a negative thing for certain people. For certain people who are called to a life of singleness or for people who really, really wanna be married but they, they just haven't yet. Or for people who are married and their spouse is so far from the Lord and there's, there's no hope of them even really ever coming to the Lord short of a miracle. And this side of eternity, we have to recognize that we can do all the great things that we are responsible to do and there can still be brokenness on the other side because ultimately we are still crying out and still desiring for God to come and to make all things right in the end. Number two, I think a point that is uh, important that this psalm teaches us is because it is a corporate liturgy, we are brought into worship that is missional. That our worship, what we do here on Sunday mornings, this is missional. That we are a people who are called out. That we, we say every Sunday morning in our call to worship that the spirit of the Lord draws us to this place. I don't know if you've ever picked up on that. If you're here when the call to worship is happening, wink, wink. But what we claim and what we believe as Christians is not that we gather ourselves, but that the spirit of the Lord gathers and draws together his church. That we are a people here who have been called out. But as we gather, we call upon. We call upon God. We're a people who have been called on. God calls us. Randall, I'm bringing you into my family. I'm bringing you into this kingdom. Everett, I'm bringing you into this kingdom. And he calls us each by name and brings us to a family so that we can then in return call on him. Our worship is missional. It is responsive. But being missional isn't just about evangelism. It's about working out God's rule and reign now as a foretaste of the perfected rule that is coming. Worship doesn't insulate us from reality. It's not a pulling away, but a pulling into. One of the things I deeply am convicted about is many of us have heard throughout our church life the old adage about leave your baggage at the door and come into the presence of God. And I think that is precisely the opposite of what the Psalms want us to do. 
I don't think the Psalms want us to bring our whole lives into this place and ignore God, but I think the Psalms are urging us to bring the entirety of all of our problems. And if you have no problems, wonderful. Help the person next to you carry theirs. I think the Psalms are calling us to bring all of these things into the presence of God and stand shoulder to shoulder with God and say, God, help me to see this like you see it. Help me to see these very real problems, this unemployment, this sickness, this thorn in the flesh, this feeling of shame, of condemnation, this feeling of no matter what I do, it's never good enough. God, I'm bringing this into your presence so that you can help me to see it differently and so that you can act on it in a way that only you can do. Because our worship is missional. Our worship is doing something as a witness to the earth. Our worship is not an insulation from society. The tension here, of course, is that our work with God matters, but not so much so that it depends on us. I think the last point here that I'd want to make in our few remaining minutes together is that as Christians, we look forward to the ultimate justice of God. And I think this psalm propels us in that way because it leaves us with the very last verse. Let's put verse eight up there, Mark, if we can. The very last verse of this psalm The narrator comes back and says, Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. There is this sense of hope in saying that all the... Go ahead and leave it it up there. There is a sense of hope in saying all the nations are your inheritance. That we are reminded that the God that we serve is not taken aback by anything that is happening right now. That God is not beyond... Uh, At this point, he is not beyond knowing how to clean this up. That God is at work in such a way that he is fully present and that he is at work in the world around us. And we must humbly realize that our very real pursuits will always come up lacking. That God gives us holy responsibility, but the end forces us back on him in dependence. You see, this is one of the tensions of the Christian life, that God gives us authority and power and responsibility, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we recognize that we have to fall back on him and say, God, I need you to do anything meaningful. And when I've done everything that I can do, even in your power, this world is still broken and still in need of you coming ultimately to judge this earth. So what does God ultimately do? What do we expect that God is going to do? We believe that God is coming to judge the earth. But we believe that God has already, in part, begun this in the incarnation. That part of what Jesus did, and we see this concern for the weak and the lowly and the dependent all throughout Scripture. So part of what Jesus did was he came as one who was weak, who was lowly, And who is dependent? And Jesus redeems it, as we see in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 3, from there I wasn't, but it's one of my absolute favorite passages. Philippians 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. See, this, this even sounds like a critique of those gods. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. 
your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, let me insert a parenthetical here, did not operate out of fear, selfish gain, or self-preservation. Verse six, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Paul resumes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Friends, the hope of a message like this is that God is already at work in you And he's already been at work in those who are oppressed. That God has already been at work in those who are weak and vulnerable and lowly. The widows, the the orphans, those who are being exploited by society. That God is already at work on their behalf. And he calls us into that work with him. If our communion attendants would prepare to come to the table... I'm going to close by reading a few verses here from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul goes on this long discourse about the resurrection and what the resurrection means for us as a people. And I'm going to begin, and I'm only going to read a few verses in verse 24, where Paul says, Then the end will come when he, meaning God, stands over the kingdom of God to the Father, After he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who has put everything under Christ. As I read this, I was struck, as he says that dominion, authority, and power are themselves destroyed. And I thought, what an interesting thing. But the more that I pondered it, I started to realize that dominion, authority, and power are only constructs that we need to relate to God and to relate to one another because the world is broken. That when we are healed, we will be brought into right relationship with God and right relationship with with one another, and there will be no more need for these constructs and hierarchies that, of course, God will be in all and above all, but the ways that we relate to one another, and I believe even the way that God relates to us, will not be through authority and power and submission and uh, dominion, but through mutual submission and, and humility. And this is ultimately the picture that we look for with justice in the earth. So this morning, before we come, I want to pray over us because I don't know about you, I have been very, very convicted by the way that I think about justice in the earth 
and the way that even in my own life, I have allowed it to be politicized before I have seen it as a gospel calling and a gospel responsibility. Lord, I pray that this morning that your words through a messenger, a temple liturgist, Asaph, thousands of years ago, I I pray that they would both provoke us to holy responsibility and also that they would push our eyes to the future in ways where we would be constantly praying, come Lord Jesus, come. That we would be crying out for your justice in the earth, in the here and now, and that we would also be convicted by praying prayers, asking Christ to come as your church has done for more than 2,000 years. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a people to think gospel-oriented thoughts and to think gospel-oriented thoughts about the issue of justice and injustices here in the earth. I pray that you would help us and cause us to see real people before we see ideologies and that before we politicize or are distracted by the reasons that things won't work, that we would be compelled to do what we can to make a difference for those around us. Lord, I pray that as Moses said, when we say, God, what what can we do? That we would hear you say, take that staff that is in your hand. And then we would follow you with whatever you say to do with the authority and the gifts that we have been given. Church, this table is a picture. It is a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. And as we come forward and as we receive from our fellow body attendees here who are our communion attendants this morning, it is a picture of complete and utter equality of us serving one another in the kingdom of God. And we come in varying levels of brokenness, but we come to a savior who heals and who ultimately calls us to move forward. So I'd like to invite you to stand this morning as we come to the table of the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.